Off a long flight, especially a downwind flight, calling the, calling the control centers and saying, hey, I couldn't have done this without you. And, and Denver Center, when I ended up in, I think, Casper, or maybe it was Gunnison, where I talked to the center supervisor, and he said, hey, that was so fun to watch you come across on this flight. He said, we actually had controllers that stayed after their shift just to kind of watch to see where you ended up. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast, coming to you from the mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Thank you, Michelle, and welcome back to the podcast. Our friend Zach Yamauchi recently caught up with Gordon Betcher. Now, Gordon has added a whole new meaning to cross-country soaring. As you're about to hear in just a few minutes, he has been soaring pretty much his whole life. He soloed at the age of 14 and has not looked back. Gordon holds five U.S. distant records and has multiple crosswind and downwind flights beyond 2,000 kilometers, including flights done in a Kestrel from the 1970s. He began his professional aviation career in the Navy and now flies for FedEx. But Gordon's true passion for aviation is in the glider and finding that perfect wave to grab another long-distance flight. Finally, a reminder for all of us before we let him tell his story. Gordon is a highly experienced aviator and has a lifetime of experience that has enabled him to do these amazing flights safely and legally. The experiences we are about to share with you are for educational and entertainment purposes only. They are not a substitute for formal flight training or mentorship. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I got a very special guest for you guys today, Gordon Betger. So, Gordon, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Zach. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, happy to have you on. So, let's get right into it. So, from speaking with Captain. I know you have an extensive soaring and aviation career stretching back to your teenage years. How did it all get started? Uh, it got started. My dad, Wolfgang, moved over from, uh, he came, came over to the U.S. Uh, from Germany in the 60s and uh, used to take me up in the glider down in the Mojave Desert, throw me in the back of a 232 or whatever he could find. And I really enjoyed it. And then I, I did a lot of surfing as a kid, um, skiing. But I think the uh, the soaring stuff was really kind of in the back of my mind. You know, I just had to wait to get old enough to do it. So when I was 13, he asked me if I wanted to start taking lessons down in Southern California off a of winch, which I immediately agreed to. About a week later, we went and I joined the Long Beach Soaring Club uh, at age 13 and then uh, just got hooked right away. Uh, had a lot, of, a lot of mentors that were that were, that were older. So I, I grew up with a lot of kind of older people just through the, through the aviation thing. And then on my 14th birthday, I soloed in gliders on a 233. And then shortly thereafter, um, I really had a big desire to start getting into cross country stuff. So I, uh, soloed in a Schweitzer 126 and then I started flying a 135 Schweitzer 135 out in the uh, Mojave desert, kind of going after the badges at a young age. And then I started chasing those badges and, and, finally got uh, my diamond C. And then uh, as I was getting older, I figured I had to do something with my career. I loved flying so much. I wanted to fly for a living. I want, uh, the ultimate goal is to become an airline pilot, even at a, at a young age. So I, I kind of started structuring my, my education and hobbies and everything else around that, knowing that uh, to get into the military, the standards were pretty high and it was pretty, pretty difficult. So, you know, I kind of hunkered down. I stuck Stuck with the soaring stuff, never gave that up until I actually joined the military. Uh, so I joined the Navy, 
uh, went through flight training in Pensacola and then got winged in May of 1990 and then spent very little time soaring just because of uh, family stuff. Had two kids, uh, started off early with that. Uh, marriage and you know at the time I was based down at down at Miramar flying with the Navy so I did two deployments on uh, two different carriers the Constellation and the uh, the USS Ranger did my time in the Navy which was a six-year commitment uh, got out at age 28 and uh, right away got on with FedEx flying MD-11s and I've been with FedEx for 26 years now and now I'm been flying triple sevens now for about four years, about 23 years on MD-11 and about four years now, or uh, I'm sorry, about 20, 22 years on MD-11 now, about four years on the triple seven. So shortly after I got on with FedEx, I started jumping into the soaring thing a little, a little more heavily. I really wanted to start focusing on long flights. And as a young kid flying out of Cal City, I was really looked up to uh, Henry Coombs and Mike Kerner, who were doing long downwind wave flights in the wave. You know, I didn't have the equipment or the clearances to do it at the time. But once I got out of the Navy, I started getting a little more serious into it. I uh, was fortunate enough to uh, round up some clearances and then uh, delve into the uh, into the cross country wave stuff, which was uh, which is fantastic. Awesome. Sounds like, as I suspected, aviation's been with you since the start. Yep, I think uh, I, I just feel uh, extremely fortunate. Um, it's nice talking to the younger kids now, and, and you know, right now there's going to be such a shortage of pilots, and I, I I can't stress how important soaring has been with my aviation career. And I, had it not been for soaring, I you know, it, it, that's a whole other story. But had it not been for the soaring, I uh, I don't think I would have made it into the uh, aviation program with the Navy. And what aircraft were you flying in the Navy? I flew the E two Hawkeye carrier-based AWACS type aircraft. So like I said, two deployments and I don't know, a couple, about 300 uh, carrier landings uh, over a hundred at night. Um, so yeah, I've got, got quite a few landings on the boat, but uh, you know, it still comes back to soaring. It's soaring is, is by far a lot more exhilarating and, and challenging, I think, than anything else I've done in, in, in all the aviation things I've done. You know, and I, there, there's a lot more aviation out there, but from, from what I experienced uh, with my past, uh, the soaring still is, is uh, by far, you know, the, the passion that I've, I've always had for aviation. Well, thank you. Yeah, sounds like an incredible career. Well, now to get to the fun stuff, I want to dig into some of the soaring, yeah. uh, some kind of your soaring background, some incredible flights. You have some of the longest flights, not only in the U.S., but the world. What specifically draws you to these kind of long flights, especially in wave and uh, the long distance cross-country wave flights, as well as the straight out flights in wave, which is kind of unique? Yeah, you know, I, I, Zach. I think um, first of all, I'd like to, you know, anyone that's listening to this, it's it's not in that geographic area that has the ability to 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 experience this um, these type of conditions. Um, yeah, I, I just have to say, I, I the huge advantage I have is is basically having the wave literally over my head um, where I live. Um, so. Based off of that, I, what I want to do is essentially take take advantage of of the conditions that that exist where I live, you know. And it's I think it's all relative. You live on the East Coast, you know, five hundred kilometer flight is a is maybe a big flight, and 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 that's all good. And I, I totally understand that. But I, I what I try to do is compare this a lot to like surfing. You know, if you if you live on the North Shore of Hawaii, well, you're going to take advantage of what you have there, which are big waves and 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 uh, the ability to, to, to surf that stuff. And, 
And very, very similar to that, I think, you know, what I'm able to do, given the, the fact that I have these weather conditions literally in my backyard, I, I just want to take advantage of that. And I've always been fascinated with wave. There's, there's a certain um, mystery with it. It's, uh, it can get real nasty. Um, uh, a lot of people don't like it. They don't like the cold, the icing. So there, there are a lot of negative things, but I see those as challenges that can be overcome. And I think given, um, given the proper preparation, um, I think it can be done very safely. Um, uh, you know, I've had several people have had bad things happen in wave and those are, um, those are all pretty much pilot inducing. I think we learn from those mistakes and, uh, you know, my, my aviation background in the Navy and having been a safety officer, I, I think, um, I, I think I'm pretty safe in my decision-making and, and the preparation for these wave flights. So, um, wave is just fascinating that the, the energy that's out there, um, is, is mind blowing, especially in the Sierra and, and, uh, the whole, uh, basically the great basin and, and even the Rockies, you know, that the conditions that we have here, are just, just phenomenal or insane. And so, you know, I've done a lot of thermal stuff, obviously also. And, you know, when you compare the two, um, thermaling, there's essentially a lot of work that goes into that flight, you know, the, the circling and, and, uh, you know, speeds are much, much slower. Um, Certainly. So I, I think, um, I think I just like, I, I like the challenge of wave. Um, it can get, like I said, you, it can be very, uh, um, demanding. It's exhausting. Sometimes you get beat up, but it's, it's can be very rewarding too. Um, and you can get some big, big, big flights out of that. And I think, I think we've only scratched the surface with, uh, with these flights. I think we can go much further given the right equipment and uh, the right preparation and, and probably the most importantly that the right conditions and being there for that, uh, for those conditions, uh, unfortunately my, my airline job gets in the way of that. So, um, uh, there, there are many times where I'm watching, I'm sitting in China or, or in Sydney and I'm watching the weather out here, just grinding my teeth, wondering, you know, Oh God. <laughs> but, yeah. When the FOMO is real, right? Yeah. And a bit, you know, without my job, I wouldn't be doing this either. So my job is a means to the fun. I think I've got the greatest job in the world, but, um, uh, flying itself is fun, but it doesn't, uh, the, the, the real flying to me is, is getting in a glider and, uh, and dealing with the weather and seeing how far we can go. So. Excellent. Yeah. You mentioned equipment. Tell me about the ships you currently own and, uh, fly both in a uh, wave and thermal. Well, the, uh, there's a single ship right now, which is a, a duo discus. Um, it's a T model. Um, so it's got the turbo, but, um, when, uh, when I started flying this or actually previous to the, to the, uh, duo discus, I, I started these long distance flights in my old 1971 Kestrel 17. And, um, I, I equipped that with some big bottles. So I, I got my, actually my, my 2000 kilometer diploma with three, three turn points. I, I did get that in the, uh, in the Kestrel 17, which is very rewarding because I'd been flying that, uh, glider for a long time since probably I was 17 years old. I'd been flying a Kestrel 17 and, and, and I think the thing that was really neat, um, was to basically allow everyone to see that you don't need you know, you don't need a half a million dollar airplane to go do this stuff. And, um, definitely. And, and to flying a glider that was, you know, 
I don't know, fifteen, seventeen thousand dollar glider that was made in nineteen seventy one and and flying for flying over two thousand kilometers. Um, that was very, very rewarding um, to me. So um, that's not to put anything down that uh, any flights that have been done in, in, in the super glass ships because um, that's going to be in the future with me. So, um, <laughs> but I, I think I think I right currently I'm flying a duodiscus. Um, and as I was saying, the duodiscus was equipped with a motor. So what we did was we pulled the engine out of this uh, duodiscus because we needed the key with the wave flying, long distance wave flying, it's battery and oxygen um, and obviously, mm -hmm. obviously warmth, but equipment wise, it's, it's battery and oxygen. So the gentleman I was flying with, Hugh Bennett, he was an older gentleman. He had the duodiscus and uh, he wanted to do some of these flights with me. And I, you know, he was already in his uh, late seventies early, uh, maybe 80. Um, yeah, late seventies actually. And so, um, he approached me, wanted to do some of these flights and he's an adventurous type, had a sailing background. Um, and so I said, okay, if you want to do this, um, pull the motor out of the uh, duodiscus, fill as much oxygen capacity in the back of that, in that engine bay as you can. And we need to put, get as much, um, battery juice as we can in the, uh, in the glider. So, uh, bottom line, we have over, you know, it's, uh, over a hundred uh, square, uh, cubic feet of oxygen. Um, oh, that's incredible. Uh, so we have, so, so oxygen, um, the, the reason why I say oxygen is so important. You don't want to get into a 10, 11, 12 hour situation and you're running low. Then you've, you know, and, and you still have a lot of time to go. And cause unsafe decisions can be made at that point, especially when you, um, when you're really determined to try to get extra miles or, or achieve that goal or, or record. So, um, always overdo it with the oxygen, overdo it with the battery. So, um, we started doing these long, these flights. I think our first flight with him was 1200 kilometers and it was kind of a test flight and he felt like a million bucks. And, uh, so we kept stretching that further and further. And then I started thinking about doing some, some records with him, some three turn point straight out records. Um, and so we started doing that up and down the Sierra. Um, and so we had a 2000 kilometer flight, three turn point, uh, record. Then we had a free distance over 2000 kilometers. Then we did a, um, I think I did an OLC, you know, actually in the Kestrel, I did a, uh, another 2000 kilometer flight, um, before. Yeah, I saw so I, I keep forgetting about what this happened a while back. So, um, it's hard to remember. I don't remember these numbers, you know, to me, it's, it's, it's all about kind of having fun and, and learn, getting that, you know, the experience and moving on. But, um, so we stretched all those distances further. And then my, my ultimate goal, my passion, my real passion, it's not necessarily going up and down this year. It's, but going, it's going downwind kind of following in the footsteps of, um, Mike Kerner and, um, and Henry Coombs. And, and, and I think we have the ability to make some, uh, super long downwind flights, and we'll talk about that here in a bit, I think. Um, Excellent. But, yep. But the Duo Disc is, is, is the current ship. Um, I have, uh, in the last few days, I've lined something else up, which I kind of want to, um, the, the ship I've lined up will probably allow for um, overnight flight and, um, you know, 3,000 kilometer type distances. So. Well, I think it's a race between like you and Jim, you and Jim Payne probably to see who starts nailing those 3,000s consistently. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's the the completely next level. Yeah, the advantage he has is is the time because he's retired. So this is this is he's living up here now too, and uh, you know he has the the, you know basically the time and and full support, which is I think very important too to do that. I've got a you know I've got a job, I've got a family, I've got a sixteen year old at home. So there's you know there's a lot of other things that that uh, you know that I have to consider and and. you know, I'll be around, you know, I'm, I'm 54 now. So I, I, I'd still have time to do this before I lose my mind or end up in a wheelchair. So, um, <laughs> sure. but I, um, before we finish up the subject of, uh, um, the equipment you're flying, the gliders you're flying, um, through Kestrel flights, I'm just curious, do you ever fly those wave flights with any ballast or were those completely dry, completely lightweight flights? Those were all dry. Wow. The thing with the Kestrel, it, it, it really, it didn't hold enough water uh, weight-wise to, to get that wing loading up uh, to, to make it worthwhile because you have to, you know, you got to start throwing antifreeze in and there are a lot of other things. So maybe it was part laziness and then part just thinking it wasn't going to be as effective as, as it might have been. Um, uh, keep in mind on those downwind flights, you don't want to have that wing loading, you know, cause you're, yeah. you're letting that wind do the work, obviously. So it's these crosswind flights. Um, but what I've, what I've really noticed in, um, with both the duo and, and the, uh, the Kestrel is just the fact that I'm, 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 I'm speed limited, you know, and I can't tell you the number of times I've flown in wave, you know, where I'm going up, um, you know, 1500 feet a minute and, you know, 26,000 feet or something. And, and I can't, I cannot fly any faster. So I literally have to fly out of the wave in order to, uh, to maintain that block of altitude that I was assigned by ATC. So there's a lot of kind of z- unnecessary zigzagging going around, spoilers getting pulled out and, and, um, and, and trying to keep that speed down below the V and E. So, um, that issue is going to be resolved here. So, um, great. So yeah, I, I, you know, in the future I'll be able to get much higher speeds. Uh, um, and once again, this, this, this has nothing to do with piloting performance. It, it has to do with the energy that's, that's out there that's being thrown at me. So it's not that I'm, I'm some stellar pilot, you know, achieving you know, 105 mile an hour average speed on a, 1500 kilometer flight or it's, it's, you know, you have to have, you have to have those conditions to allow you to do that, you know? So, um, certainly our longtime sponsor of the show, the soaring Academy is engaged in nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also with young people for the STEM programs at their top notch glider port facility, just outside of Los Angeles, nestled near the North side of the San Gabriel mountains, They also have a fantastic flight school and are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, go to soaringacademy.org or check them out on Instagram at Soaring Academy. In terms of your duo time, what do you specifically enjoy about flying two-seaters? Is it having the extra person, shared workload, bouncing ideas off of each other, taking a nap? Yeah, I think it's... it's, kind of a combination of all of those the uh i i think probably the most rewarding thing because i've done it i've done it all i've done the downwind flights in the kestrel solo extremely high workload um i've done the up and down the sierra um high workload but not as high um so 
first of all, I mean, to, to share that workload, you have to have two competent people. Um, cause, uh, you know, there's certain times where flying in that wave, especially if it's blue, uh, you know, a heading is, is super critical. I've flown with people. I said, I, you need to give me five degrees, right. And then, you know, I'm, I'm just chasing those calls. So that kind of ends up being more of a, um, kind of a babysitting job, um, which, which, High, you know, brings a workload up. So if you have two competent people and a good example of that is a few weeks ago, I flew with Keith Essex and, and Jim Lee, and we're, um, we're pretty much, I think all on the same level with this wave stuff. Um, and we were able just to, you know, you can just, just take your hat off and just relax. Cause the other person knows what they're doing. They know where they're headed and they're not going to fly you into a cloud or b- below a block altitude. And, and you can share on the decision-making too. Um, and that I think has a lot, uh, a lot of good, af- positive effects, you know, um, because when you're the only one making that decision, you know, sometimes you end up second guessing yourself. Should I go that way or pick that cloud? And I think a lot of people that fly to place with two competent people know what I'm talking about. So bottom line, um, the two placing is extremely helpful with two competent pilots and workload, decision-making, um, fatigue, and then keep an eye on each other because, you know, a lot of these flights are done, you know, most of it's done above 20, 22, 23,000 feet. So it's a safety factor too, um, because if one person gets hypoxic or there's, there's some kind of a, a physical issue going on, then the other person can fly, you know, whereas if you're solo and you don't recognize your hypoxic sy- symptoms and you end up going to sleep, then it's, uh, you know, it's game over. So, yeah, your margins for any kind of, uh, Anything yeah. going wrong up in the flight levels is significantly reduced compared to what we normally do below 18,000. Yeah. And that's, that's another thing that, that increases that workload because, uh, you know, obviously with, with what we're doing, I don't think we're, I, I have a, a pulse oximeter that tied in with an app on the phone. So it's constantly monitoring me. And so I'm able to regulate the, the, the flow of the regulator, um, but it's still in the back of your mind, you know, and there's, there's icing and, you know, I've had canopies crack on me at 28,000 feet and, you know, uh, you know, it's, it can get ugly, um, real quick and it's very unforgiving. And, and, you know, I, I can't imagine thinking about bailing out on some of these days where, you know, it's blowing 40 or 50 knots on the ground. Um, so, uh, the two man thing is, is rewarding. I think, that, you know, all that aside, the most rewarding thing is landing, opening up that canopy and being able to sh- just look at each other and go, wow, you know, and you share that experience, that mm-hmm. memory. And that's why I like taking a lot of pictures when I fly. And that's another thing I like about two plays because I can, I can focus on taking pictures. And uh, the last couple of flights, I've just gotten some phenomenal pictures because I was able to basically give up the airplane and, and, uh, and, and focus on pictures and, and that I can share with people post-flight, you know? So, um, but Jim Lee had a great flight when we flew, he, you know, and he's on the U S team. And he said that was the, the, his favorite two place flight he would, he ever had. And tomorrow we're going to fly again tomorrow. So, um, yeah, for those of those of our listeners who are on Instagram, um, you, uh, I, in my opinion, Gordon's got one of the most underrated underfollowed glider Instagrams. It's G R Betker B O E T T G E R. Um, if you don't mind me sharing that, yeah. um, there's some incredible shots on that. I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have seen these images reposted. Um, but if you want to get straight to the source, um, he's got some incredible pictures from this season, particularly um, one of your uh, more recent flights. That I think we'll talk a little bit more about with some incredible cloud formations. Yeah. Um, but uh, 
can highly recommend his uh, his Instagram feed. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. So Gordon, most of the time, it's our goal at the end of the day to end where we started. Seems like you're quite good at that. However, I know from some of your flights on OLC, um, you do end up quite a ways from takeoff. So what's your longest retrieves that you've had to do, both with and without crew? Is it the inconvenience of doing a plan straight out? Is that really worth it? Uh, you know, Zach, that's a really good question. Um, you know, what's interesting with with everything, with anything but a straight out, if you talk to a, a just your average aviator, your non-soaring pilot, they don't understand the concept of out and return or triangle flights or yo-yo flights. They a, a lot of people, and that's just due to ignorance, but they don't grasp the the, the purpose of it. And so what people do get is point A to point B, the, the straight out flights. And for, for some reason to me that, um, it, it's, ex, it's, there's so much work that goes into it. And as I was telling you earlier, that sometimes there's, it's almost a relief when you see the weather fall apart downwind as was the case this morning. Cause I was looking uh, to go downwind and then sky site wasn't really showing it to be too promising in Utah and Colorado. So, I went, oh, okay, I'll just do the easy yo-yo. You know, I don't, I don't know what the Europeans think about the yo-yo flights. They've seen a lot of them done <laughs> this year and they think maybe it's cheating. And, and I don't, I'm not uh, per- particularly a fan of the yo-yo flights. And to me, there's a point where you go, okay, enough's enough's enough. And I know people are chasing OLC points and, and things like that, but there in the last few years or several flights of, uh, you know, I could have kept going up and down. I go, well, we went down and we came back. Um, I'm, I'm good. Are you good? Yeah. He goes, I'm good. So we just go down, go and land. But regarding the downwind stuff, to me, it's, it's, it's probably the most rewarding by far because of the challenges. Um, however, the workload is extremely high. You're, you're flying into, uh, into different air masses typically, and it's very, very, very difficult to get weather um, to line up all the way uh, to where you have mountain wave across three states in the Colorado and then, you know, that's ultimately my goal is to get out east of the Rockies for a, you know, 2000 kilometer straight out flight, which I think is very possible. But keep in mind, uh, you know, I have my work schedule. I'm gone half the month with, uh, with FedEx. And then, you know, there's maybe one or two days out of the year that, that allow the, allow you to get, have these weather conditions to do that. So along those lines, um, a good example is, uh, about two weeks ago, Kemp, Jim Lee, Keith Essex, we were all looking at the weather because I was targeting to going downwind into uh, Kansas. And it it was almost, the, the weather was almost there, but it wasn't, you know. And now I have to ask myself, is it worth me going straight downwind for, a, you know, for a thousand kilometers, which, which I've done, and end up in, you know, somewhere in Colorado or Utah? Cause yeah. the, you know, it's a, it's probably a, a four, four to five day process of going, you know, getting the, the retrieve vehicle on the way and then the, you know, get you. And by the time you get back, you know, four days have gone by. So it's, it's a big commitment. And I think that is uh, something that really, the weather really has to line up for me to commit to that downwind flight. Cause I don't want to, you know, I don't mean to seem arrogant, but you know, for me to go three or 400 miles downwind is not, it's not going to do me any good. I, you know, I've, I've done that. So if, for example, tomorrow, it looks like it's better up and down the Sierra. So I'm going to fly with Jim and mostly just kind of exercise the glider and then, you know, exercise my, uh, 
you know, that my flight plan with air traffic control and, and just systems, kind of a systems check. And, you know, if it ends up being a good flight, it is, if, if it's just an out and back, that's fine, you know, but my, my, my true desire, if there's one record I could, that I would love to have, it would be for that straight out distance record to beat Klaus Ullmann's straight out distance record. I think that would be my ultimate goal. If there's one record I could have, that's the one I would like to have. So excellent. Uh, by, by the way, what's that, you know, that record off the top of your head I, where that was in I, the distance? He did that down, um, in, um, Argentina, I believe. And I think that was, uh, in the upwards of 2,200 kilometers. He did it along, wow. he, he did it along the wave. So he flew from South to North and they have a, a distinct advantage down there. In, in terms of the latitude wise, the, the distance that that mountain wave works, we're, we're really limited north and south wise. We have the Southern Sierra down, you know, you figure Mojave area is probably about the furthest south you can go and the furthest north is Susanville. And what happens on, on these flights is that, um, and, and a good example of these, my three turn point flights where I had to declare turn points for the 2000 kilometer diploma. I had to declare those turn points, uh, two of them far enough south to where it was, I was falling out of the wave because I was lo- there was no more energy down there. And then I get to the northern turn point in Susanville and there's too much moisture. And uh, then you start dealing with a lot of cloud cover. So I'm, you know, we're, we probably have, I don't know what the distance is on that, probably, f- you know, 400 miles or something like that, statute miles. Um, you're, you're only 400 miles, right? <laughs> yeah. So you limited that. Whereas down, I think in the Andes, you can run a lot further north and south. And that's, that's what Klaus Ullmann demonstrated. And I think in that straight out flight, he went north and ended up in, in, um, in Brazil. I was it Brazil, but he, he ended up, uh, in, I think finishing up like in thermals or I'm, I'm not quite sure, but so this, this downwind flight or this straight out flight for us would entail going downwind. And there's a huge advantage to that. And that's called that tailwind. Um, yep. And so the nice thing about that is you're not, you're not running that glider up at these super high V&E speeds. And, you know, one of the things you got to be careful there is, is you know, um, hitting those speeds and running into, you know, some turbulence that, that could be pretty dangerous for the glider. So um, luckily with downwind, you're running, you know, for the most part between minimum sink and best LOD speed. So you're, it's very relaxing and it's, it's, uh, uh, in terms of the speed and you're letting the wind do all the work, you know? Yeah. And so you're close to your minimum sink and then you've got that giant tailwind. So your LOD just goes through the roof yeah, over the ground. It does. It, it does. And, uh, you know, I think I've done this enough times, uh, downwind to where I, I, I kind of know what, uh, what to look for. And I know these, some of these peaks, especially going out towards the Northeast and Wyoming and towards, uh, South Dakota. Um, it's, it's pretty much your, there's pretty much one route that you take. And the problem with that Northeastern type route is moisture. Typically I've, I've run into s- several flights where I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of cloud cover, you know, and that gets a little nerve wracking. And, uh, it, it, it can get dangerous too, but, you know, and then you're dealing with air traffic control, restricted areas, land out spots, you know, what's the next, uh, feature that's going to generate wave. And, uh, so there's, there's a lot more to the downwind, uh, flights, which I think makes it in the long run more rewarding. 
you know, if, sure. if, if you can get that flight. But like I said, to, to get those really solid days, there's maybe one or two days a year that allow you to do that. And in your case, have to line up with your schedule, yep. cruise logistics, all of that. Exactly. So everything ha- has to be the perfect day. Yeah. In terms of long flights you've done of the long straight outs, um, for what I could tell online, I've seen some twin uh, flight to Twin Falls, Salt Lake City, Crested Butte, Colorado. Any um, that I'm missing from far out ones? Yeah, there was Casper, Wyoming. Um, it wasn't Crested, okay. but it was it was it was Steamboat and uh, Gunnison, Colorado. Um, okay. Gunnison was out down towards the Southeast cause that's where, um, the energy was running that day. Uh, but most of the flights, the steamboat flight was done in the Kestrel and that was, uh, I pretty much covered, um, uh, all of Nevada and mountain wave. And then, uh, it switched over to thermals. The air mass went unstable and I had to go switch gears and, and, and thermal the rest, the other half of the flight. And that was, a. So- Just Soaring, the makers of the Glider Sim Pro Sailplane Simulator Cockpit, would like to congratulate German pilot Ben Fest for his recent victory in the first ever FAI-sanctioned aviation esports event in history, the Sailplane World Grand Prix, which Ben won after several days of exciting competition against some of the top Condor soaring pilots from around the world. If you are looking for a best-in-class dedicated sailplane simulator cockpit for Condor or Microsoft Flight Sim, look no further than the Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. Check them out at JustSoaring.com or at Just.Soaring on Instagram. Essentially going from the California border all the way to Colorado or Wyoming. That's nuts. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, like I said, it's, it's so rewarding when you're covering... You know, it's, it's really neat when you're watching these ground speeds and you're sitting there at 50 or 60 knots, and you're clipping along, you know, 160 knot ground speed or something like that, you know, very relaxing. And, and you know, along the lines of this whole cross country stuff, it's, it's just, a, it's a, just a, for me, it's a massive team effort. And I keep, I keep saying that, you know, uh, I couldn't, couldn't do it without, you know, air traffic control or ground crew or tow pilot, you know, and. And, uh, and just, you know, my wife and support and, you know, it's, it's definitely a team effort. So that's, that's the other thing that makes this thing very rewarding, you know, is just coming off a long flight, especially a downwind flight, calling it, calling the control centers and saying, Hey, I couldn't have done this without you. And, and I had a couple, uh, Denver center when I ended up in, I think Casper or maybe it was Gunnison where I, I talked to the center supervisor and he said, Hey, you, that was so fun to watch you come across. Mm-hmm on this flight. And, uh, he said, we actually had controllers that stayed after their shift just to kind of watch to see where you ended up. And wow. to me, that's, that's rewarding. I landed in Casper pitch black, probably, I don't know what time that was, but it was, <laughs> it was blowing really, really hard. Were you able to get out of the glider then, or was that, uh, were you trapped in it for a while? Stayed in the glider. It was dark. So they, they, they lit up the, there were two runways that were active. They turned the lights off the less favorable runway. And then, (laughs) uh, you know, by the way, we have nav lights on the, on the duo. We don't have landing lights, but we have uh, position lights. So we're legal at night and uh, people might be wondering about that, but, um, so we landed, it was pitch black blowing. So we had probably four employees from the FBO that kept us in the glider and they just pushed the thing into their, uh, big hangar. And, uh, wow. you know, I think one of the most rewarding things on that flight was we were sitting in the FBO two hours later and we still had our big mountaineering suits on and kind of wanted <laughs> to do that night. Um, and this, this father and son walk in and they go, we followed you 
we were on our way to Colorado and we drove three hours out of our way to come to the airport to come see you guys. And uh, so they'd, Incredible. they'd been tracking the flight and that really, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was really neat. And uh, so I ended up following up with those guys a few years later in Minden when they came out for a wave camp and I you know, met up with them. And that to me. Is- so that was your flight in 2013 from uh, Minden to Gunnison? No, that was the Casper flight. We, uh, okay. um, that was what, what happened there is we got bogged down and, uh, we got slowed down in Utah. The wave kind of, uh, the wave got soft. I ended up stuck in East of Logan and, um, yeah, I got stuck East of Logan, got low and then finally hooked into the wave and got to, I think, 28,000 feet. Salt Lake Center calls me. They said, hey, um, your mode C, we've lost your mode C. Well, I've got two transponders in that glider for that reason. So I said, well, let me recycle. And so while I said that, I'm just basically buying time. And uh, uh, she says, still negative. You know, and I figured what had happened is what uh, I figured the encoder had had frozen. And so she lost my mode. Oh, jeez. And so I, I swapped over to the other transponder. She gave me five minutes and she, and she said, well, let me, uh, let me talk to my control supervisor and see what, what we need to do with you. Cause the other option and per, per my agreement, if, if they lose modes here, lose radar contact, I'm to, um, my, my job's to descend below 18,000 feet and land. The problem is on these downwind flights, you're out in the middle of nowhere. And a lot of times you got 40 or 50 knot winds and you can't just land anywhere. So, and then that flight, we had snow on the ground everywhere. So she calls back. She says, you're going to have to descend below 18. So I said, oh, no. So my response to that, I said, well, can you get me the weather for Bear Lake Airport? So she gave me the notams and she said there was a, there was a, like a, a meter and a half high uh, snow berm on both sides of the runway. And I said, well, I, I can't safely land at that airport. I'd like to continue to uh, Riverton and use that as a divert, which was actually along my route of flight. So, and it was, <laughs> it was another 150 miles downwind. So I figured by the time, you know, by the time I get there, maybe the things will change. So she let me stay up high and, and go all the way out towards uh, the Wind River Range, east of Wind Riverton. And there I hooked into the just massive wave. And that same, in that same wave system, there was a United flight that uh, they had a bunch of passengers hit the ceiling from the turbulence. And so, um, so we climbed up, I was, I crossed the wind rivers at probably, f- I ended up crossing that, uh, and they're big mountains. I ended up down like at 14,000 feet on the downwind side. And there was this big monster rotor cloud pulled in front of that. And, you know, off went the Vario and now, you know, beep, 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 you know, it was pegged out. And so, you know, by now that the sun was starting to go low cause we're losing time going East, right. We're losing two hours a day. Yep. So I'm fighting that. So, uh, Denver center, um, I descended low enough to where my encoder warmed up. So he got my mode C again. He says, you cleared for a block 14 to two four Oh. So I got to 24,000 feet still climbing eight <laughs> knots or whatever, but I was, it was getting dark and I, I, you know, I, my goal was just to get to, uh, Casper. And so I, uh, I climbed up and I, I just, I remember how cold it was cause the sun was behind us, um, setting and we were heading east and it got dark and it, it was so it was really cold and that's one of the factors i'm gonna one of the things i'm gonna have to try to figure out is are the cold temperatures at night but i ended up pushing into casper and that was that day i landed and it was really windy but uh um 
Um, and you know, another thing I want to mention on one of those flights, there was, uh, um, there were some school grade kids that were actually following the flight on my DeLorme Garmin inReach. Mm-hmm. And it was part of their science project. So they were talking about physiology. They're talking about, you know, meteorology. They're talking about, uh, you know, aircraft, you know, gliders. And, and so all that stuff tied up. It's just a fascinating thing, you know, and I think we need to try to get these kids involved, you know, um, cause it's just, it's such a, uh, I don't know. The soaring seems to be just kind of falling apart in the United States. And, and, you know, it, it's, it's mostly in a, it's an old, old man's game now. Um, whereas in Europe, there's a lot, uh, it, it's pretty interesting cause I, I follow some of the, some of the stuff on YouTube and it's, it's great seeing these kids out there. I'm calling them kids, but they're probably in their twenties like you. And, and they're out there, you know, hanging out with each other, flying, doing cross-country flights, flying contests. It's fascinating, you know, and uh, we need to try to revive that whole thing here in the in the States. And that's, that's another reason I'm trying to do this, Zach, is to try to wake people up to the capabilities of, of soaring and, and what gliders can actually do, because people don't get it. They just think you go up and you land. And uh, yeah, I, I get it. Yeah, that's what I struggle with uh, here being... Um running the Avenal club, trying to get young people involved. And it's, yeah. it's, yeah, that's people would rather be on their computers, on their phones, playing video games, than actually going out and experience the world and some of the incredible things you can do yep. um, yeah. with the right training with, with uh, some determination. So yeah, you and I are in this fight together. Yeah. Well, it's guys like you that are going to do it, you know, um, yeah. I'm not saying I'm too old for this, but you know, I think through, <laughs> um, you know, through, through my flying, I think, I would rather see some kid get into soaring um, as a result of one of my flights and actually getting a record. You know, to me, that's more rewarding, you know, and that, 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 that's a much uh, more rewarding uh, thing uh, to, to experience, I think, than, than getting something on a piece of paper, you know? Um, so. Excellent. Well, we're talking about these flat high altitude flights, uh, mentioning um, some uh, letters and stuff with air traffic controls. Um, for most glider pilots, yeah, Class A is the limit. There's a few of us that are fortunate enough to live close enough to areas that have wave windows or other sp- particular airspaces that allow for glider flights up high. It sounds like in your situation, uh, you've got access to a lot of the national airspace system. So how do you uh, obtain these air traffic control clearances and conduct these flights legally? Are there special IFR requirements or letters of agreement for, for this, yeah, these types of flights? Specifically letter of agreement that you have to have. So which, uh, which specifies sp- specific equipment, you know, they, they don't want, uh, you, you're going to have to be instrument rated. Um, but there's, there's actually a lot more beyond just that. Um, because, uh, you know, as you can imagine up in class A, when, you know, they're dealing with airliners, they, they, they really don't need the inexperienced person, whether it's not being able to talk on the radio or blowing block altitudes and not complying with, uh, with certain, uh, you know, regulations, cause you are technically on, on an IFR clearance. So, um, when I first got these, uh, LOAs, it was, it was probably, I would say 20 something years ago, you know, and it started with LA center. It, it took years to get it's, uh, because, you know, they're going, you know, you're doing what and, and what you don't have an engine. And, uh, so I, I think it's, uh, I think it's just getting them to understand that we can work with them, um, and work in that airspace, as long as we comply 
with, uh, with the instructions that were given and we don't cause, uh, you know, obviously I'm, they're not going to let me fly through the LA basin on an, uh, crossing a sure. going into LAX. So once again, I'm very fortunate to live in, a, in, in, in an area that has airspace. We have a lot of restricted areas around here, which, um, if, if they're in use, they're in use. Um, and so the, you know, the military, that's, that's a whole nother thing that the, the restricted airspace, air traffic control can't dictate that, uh, you know, what, what happens to that military airspace. If it's in use, then they send me around it. And essentially on these downwind flights, I have to plan for that. So when in my flight planning, I, I, I do plan for that. And I plan that I, that I just assume that those areas will be hot or in use. So my ride or flag flight goes around that. And then what I'll do is if I want to go through something, I'll ask the controller, um, say, Hey, what's the status of, uh, R6405, you know, well, it's, it's hot or it's cold, you know, and, and it, it, just to show you how, how cooperative and how, how, uh, helpful some of these controllers are. I was out, um, down on Western Utah out, uh, in, uh, off the Ruby range and climbing up and had a lot of cloud cover, just really, it was, it was not fun. Um, but there was restricted airspace east of me from Hill air force base. that was just out of sight of salt Lake. And mm -hmm. I wanted, I was, I was thinking about possibly going downwind into this restricted airspace, but it was in use at the time. And, and I told, I told the air traffic controller, I said, Hey, this, here's, here's the situation I'm in. And she said, well, let me talk to the, uh, let me talk to the, the fighters and they, they're doing an exercise and she actually got the fighters to move up into the Northern, uh, uh, restricted area. So, I mean, incredible. Whoa. You know, she says you're clear through R64 or whatever it was. And, uh, I went, wow, you know, that's cool. And that's where I, that's where I say it's a team effort, you know, um, mm -hmm. to make these things happen. And, um, a, a lot of these flights, especially the downwind flights, these things, you know, they're not, you know, doable. Um, you can't do these below, uh, class a, I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've, I've, you know, I've flown over weather, you know, for long distances from like good examples, the rubies to, to Logan, Utah, where I'm literally wow. an hour and a half under flying over a complete undercast, you know? Um, so, uh, <laughs> So that, that, in situations like that, it's just landing out or descending through that. Is that just out of the question? Yeah, you'd definitely be in, a, in an emergency situation. You would have to put yourself, you know, and you, you have to you have to play out these scenarios uh, in your head because there's so much that goes on. There's there's unforeseen weather that just pops up. And by the way, while while I'm doing these downwind flights, I'm talking to via sat phone and, and uh, via my Delorum. I'm talking to uh, Walt Rogers, who's a retired meteorologist, and he's also a glider pilot. You know him. Um, mm -hmm. And so Walt gives me that guidance on the downwind stuff because I actually have to plan for that restricted airspace or that weather because I can't I can't just make a left ninety degree turn and go. Well, I'm going to go this way because I've got an eighty knot headwind or an eighty knot wind that I'm dealing with. So I have to literally plan, you know, maybe, you know, 300 kilometers out and say, okay, I need to kind of know where to go. And I can't, a lot of times, you know, I can't see that far. Um, and there, you know, if, if, if I were to blindly do that, I might just run myself into a complete undercast layer or, or in the weather, then, then you're stuck, you know? So Walt will give me that guidance and say, okay, here's what's happening. The weather, Logan, Utah is completely socked in with weather you need to deviate south 
So I need to do that way early on. Then I need to coordinate with ATC, say, hey, I need to move 30 degrees. And so the, the workload is extremely high, you know, in those situations. So, um, and you, you're trying to fly the airplane, not get hypoxic, you know, <laughs> you know, and you, uh, you know, and, and dealing with icing on the canopy and, and on all these other things and hoping your avionics don't die. So that that's a uh, really heavy workload um, for those downwind flights. But um, weather is definitely a big challenge on, on that downwind stuff. So I would say Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America, and they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They're also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. Yeah, if, if there was a situation where you had to descend through a layer, are you equipped to do so? Or is that, again, out of the question? No, um, I'm equipped to do so. I have I have four four means of uh of, of an attitude indicator i've got uh wow. got a tso approved rc allen um attitude indicator you know and then i've got uh running four flight with stratus i'm running the butterfly um then i've got a uh a, just a, a turn and bank indicator so i have four four modes of um imc flying but you know, it's I, I, not something you want to plan on, right? No, you, don't, you don't plan on it. Um, I, I had to do it once flying over crossing the, the, uh, the wind river range. And that was, uh, yeah, it was, it was very, very nerve wracking. Cause I crossed that entire range and I was maybe, I was probably flying for, I would say 30 or 40 minutes in full IMC conditions. I went into the clouds at 26,000 feet and came out at about 14,000 feet on, on the other side of the wind river range. And you Jeez. know, one thing, um, so, you know, one thing I also assume because I don't have pedo heat or anything else is you have to assume you're going to lose that, uh, that pedo source. Um, so I have backups to that. And so I, you, you do not want to turn, you want to hold a certain, um, a certain deck angle or pitch and you want to maintain that in you know, I don't, I would never, first of all, condone doing that. It's, it's, you know, that's something I couldn't avoid. Um, there was no place to land. Um, it, it was just this massive wall that kind of, um, you know, I, I, I ran into. So, um, the key was to keep calm. You know, I, 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 I approached this thing and I was wings level. I had everything turned on. And I just stared at the gauges, you know, and, and, and held a certain pitch, you know, and I, luckily I came out and I ended up on the east side of the wind river range, right in front of a rotor cloud and climbed back up. And, and, um, so there are icing issues you have to worry about, uh, things, you know, you know, you get, you get ice on your leading edge of your wing. What, what are you flying now? You're dropping like a rock. Yeah. You're flying a one, flying a one twenty six. Yeah. Yeah. So I did have a bailout point um, on that flight to where I could actually turn south and, and get away from the mountains, you know, 
And, and this I knew, was in the duo? Yeah. And I knew that the clouds weren't going to the ground. And Walt had also told me, he said, there's, you know, everything's clear on the east side of the Wind Rivers because of the fern gap with the wave. So that was a really, uh, that was a really uh, 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 a nerve wracking experience. I, I, I don't want to do again. Um, but, and that, you know, that's, that's the thing you have to deal with and you don't have to, but um, you can avoid it altogether by not doing these things, not flying in the wave. But um, if you want to do some of these, especially down, downwind flights, then it's, uh, you know, it's something you have to consider. You know, you, like I said, you don't want to do that. Um, if I can avoid that, I avoid it at all costs. And on, that's what I did on that flight with the uh, restricted area. I, I ended up landing in Twin Falls because there was just too much weather. I go, this is just, this is getting dangerous. Um, so, um, so anyway, that's, uh, that's that, but, uh, it's, it's, it's awesome to get this perspective on these flights. Cause you, you can look up, look at some of the write-ups or look at the traces online and that only tells 10% of the story. Oh, yeah. All it's, there's, getting the, getting the perspective in the cockpit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. Cause, uh, yeah, you come, you know, you, you land, you go, and, you know, and still to this day, I, I, you know, whether, uh, you know, I do a long flight or just, you know, it's, or a shorter flight, you land and you go, wow, I just traveled with this thing without an engine this, this far, you know, and to me, that's still just fascinating. It's just mind boggling that, you know, we're given this energy out here to do these things and fly around with this, you know, in this cockpit, you know, with a very thin layer of plexiglass, you're 28,000 feet and you're, you're shooting across the States, you know, clipping along, you know, and you got airliner guys, uh, guys, you know, I've had that happen too, or, you know, an airliner will go, you know, who, who is that up there? And they, you know, <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a glider at flight level 280. And they go, holy cow, where did he come from? Yeah. Oh, from the Reno area. And they go, holy cow. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, so, you know, that kind of, I think they're used to us down in the 08 right now, but uh, yeah, when you're in the middle of the country and there's no wave windows to be found there. Yeah. Right. So it's, uh, you know, and you kind of go, hmm, that'd be kind of neat. If that guy got a bug in his ear and goes, well, that'd be, that'd be cool to try. I'm going to go, go give it a go. You know, so. Um, Incredible. Yeah. Um, going back to some of your last, some of your, uh, Past seasons, 2011 seemed like an incredible season for you. It looked like five flights over a thousand kilometers and two of flights over 2,200 kilometers, and those are roughly just a month apart. Uh, if you, do you remember that season and what made that so special? Yeah, I do. I think it was a, you know, it was it was a, it was a period where I, I actually had some time to do this. I was I was focused um, on these flights, and uh, you know, I was really keeping an eye on the weather. And we were fortunate enough to have enough of these days in that short time period to be able to do these, do these flights. So I think, um, once again, I was lucky enough to live here to be in, be in that weather, uh, I had the time off at the time. And then at the, you know, in 2011, I was pretty driven. I was going after a lot of these, uh, these flights, you know? Um, and so there was a lot of drive that I had inside of me to get these done. And it's, I think in the last month, I, you know, I've been sitting idle. I haven't, haven't done much with, with the wave uh, stuff. One of the reasons I, it's just my schedule. I've just been busy. Uh, secondly, I, we're not, you know, we're not seeing as much wave. Uh, the, the frequency of wave is not there anymore. Um, 
We Do you think long-term wise it's, it's dealing with uh, climate change or anything like that, or is it just cyclical? Yeah, you know, suspicions, the, the big scale stuff. I don't know, Zach. I, I don't, you know, I don't like chiming in or giving my opinion on climate change. I always tell people, I said, listen, the stuff that comes out of these, uh, this exhaust that comes out of these cars, we know that's just, that's not good, but yeah. <laughs> it's just a natural um, warming, uh, a natural occurrence that happens every thousand, you know, I, I don't know. I just, but you know, uh, you have seen, you have noticed a difference though, yeah, you know, yeah, year I, to year. Yep. I mean, I think, um, you know, and even my wife mentions, she goes, God, when we first moved to Minden, she goes, God, we had, we were looking at Lenny, Lenny's all the time in the sky. And I said, you're right. And, uh, people have commented on that. So I think that's not, that's not a theory. I think that's just, that's what I see and that's what I've seen. And yeah. so I think that's part of it. But then like in the last week, we just had the wind the last couple of weeks, the wind's been, wind's been blowing like crazy and April, May are probably our target months for long distance wave flights, just because of length of day. And, and, uh, you know, we get, uh, get some pretty decent days, but in the last couple of weeks, we've actually been pretty, pretty consistent with wave. So, um, so I'd, I'd, I'd hate to point that to climate change or, you sure. know, you know, or is it just coincidence? I, I don't know, but, uh, um, yeah, I mean, we've only been, we've only been observing, this weather for, for soaring like this in the last probably 30, 40, 50 years. So. Right. Right. That's a good point. And, uh, uh, you know, that's not to say we won't have any phenomenal days. I think, you know, sure. the day will be there, but one thing I have kind of thought about in the back of my mind is like, Hmm, I, I need to start grabbing these big days when I can, cause they may or may not be here in 10 years. I don't know as, or as yeah. often. So, um, so, you know, I, I think uh, the last couple of flights I made, you know, the one with Keith that was 1,900 kilometers, that was, you know, that was just kind of a fun flight. And, uh, you know, it turned out to be good. But what it did, it was good for my mind because I really, uh, I got that drive again. I go, wow, sure. that, that was cool. <laughs> that was fun. You know, and I think the cloudscapes that day, it wasn't blue. It was well marked um, on the last two thirds of the flight. But the clouds were just insane. Hey everybody, Chuck here. Please hit the pause button and either make a note for yourself to follow up or just directly pop over to your social media or soaring forum of choice and help spread the word about this show to your friends or user groups that you know are interested in aviation or soaring. You know, we invest a lot of our time into the show. We're doing this to help grow interest and participation in the sport of soaring around the world. And we can't do it without your help. Only a handful of you contribute via Patreon, but that's okay. You can help in other ways, like spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Yeah, let, let's talk about that flight a little bit because, yeah, those pictures, as I mentioned, for all you listeners, you have to go check out that those Instagram shots um, if you haven't seen them already. But on a day like that with those high, high moisture contents and that, that air mass, how do you safely navigate the wave? And obviously, you're not trying to get blown back into it, but that, in, at least in my experience on some of the higher moisture days, those, those wave bars and those Lenny stacks move very quickly at times. Yeah, you have to, um, that day we were dealing with moisture bleeding over the Sierra, you know, the low level moisture. And, mm -hmm. um, there are certain areas along the Sierra, you really have to watch that. And one is, uh, one area is, in, is, in, is in the mammoth area. And I've had that where, 
Um, I've come out of the uh, Owens Valley and I had to get, luckily I had a clearance, but a uh, good example, I took a guy for a ride and we, we, uh, we got down there and, and uh, I looked back north and there was, it was completely under, you know, it was overcast below us um, along our route. And then when that happens, you go, okay, well, the waves, that's shutting down the wave too. But we got high over Bishop and I think I got to 28,000 feet and was able to get over all that weather. Um, had I been below 18, I never would have done that. Never would have been able to yeah. safely. Um, so um, one thing that day that I flew with Keith, which was a few weeks ago, um, that 1900 kilometer flight that it was, there was moisture blowing over the Sierra, but as long as that fern gap, as long as that wave is strong enough, um, it's going to keep that open. So it wasn't much of a concern. And, and you always, I mean, anyone that's listening, you have to have a bailout point. You have to have a place to go if you get covered up with clouds, you know, or, or you want to avoid that. So the bailout point for us, luckily along this year is always to the east. So um, there are plenty of places that we could have, there, there were, we hadn't really zero threat of going into any cloud cover at all. We, there was just no, no threat of that. We had the Lenny stacked up, but the key with that is to crab enough to where you don't, don't get blown into the, into the Lenny. Um, yeah. And that's, that's probably one of the biggest things that someone can learn with wave flying is you have to keep that crab because, you know, if you're flying, you know, in a cross. Yeah. You have to learn, you have to learn that real quick if you're flying the Sierras, because the second you, point to point your nose where you're trying to go you're in sync yep and I've if had, there's clouds you're in clouds so okay. it's it's a lesson you have to learn real fast i've had two friends bail out because they inadvertently went got pushed in their lenticular you know and they yeah. ended up bailing out at uh eric uh, he bailed out at little twenty thousand feet and then um bob spielman you know he he got pushed into a cloud too or he let himself get pushed into a cloud i think he took it took his crab out you know so um, and, and it's, it's a very subtle thing. And then, you know, things, you know, like, how oh, is the canopy icing up or what's, you know, what's going on? Next thing you know, you're in it and it's, it's done. And then you got to push into the wind into maybe a seven or eight or an 80 knot wind to get out of it. So that takes time in itself. Plus you're typically working at a very high speed where you're near V and E or, or at V and E and you have very little time to recover from that. And, you know, if you get spatial disorientation, which happened in both those cases, um, the wings came off and yeah. they bailing out. So, uh, that's, that's, that's could be a big killer in, in the wave flying thing is, is taking crab out when there's a, when you're flying alongside a lenticular cloud, you know? Yeah, most certainly. So well, great. Um, in terms of, yeah, we're on the top, well, we're on the topic of safety and techniques and everything. What kind of special equipment do you carry to conduct these wave flights? So both for not just safety, but also flying these things long distance, long duration flights comfortably. Um, I think warmth is probably the, you know, obviously the, the safety issues are, are the oxygen. Um, you want to carry plenty of that. So I, I work with a cannula a mask. I've got a, a two pulse oximeters. One is active on my finger all the time. Um, and I'd use that for the first time on the last two flights, very happy with it. You know, it was tied into an app on the phone. you you set your threshold for your blood saturation level. It gets below that and it, it buzzes your finger. So, whereas something you stick on your finger, you have to consciously do that. Um, and by the time you put that on there, your 
O2 saturation or might already be way low, you know, in a dangerous sure. level. So you have to be cognizant of that, of that yourself. And I, I recommend these O2 rings. Um, uh, I give you the information on that um, later on, you can add, but uh, I highly recommend that even for people that are flying, you know, close to 18,000 feet on the big thermal days out here out West. Um, so the, the O2 um, blood, uh, your, um, a, uh, the O2 ring or, or pulse oximeter, um, clothing, you got to stay warm. It's especially working at these high speeds. You have leaks in the, in the canopy, in the cockpit. Um, so you want to stay uh, warm, but that, that can bite you if you get down low. I had that happen where I was working low and I almost overheated because I had a big expedition suit on. So that's just something you have to deal with. Um, and then, and then are you running heat, any, uh, electronic heaters under that? No, because I don't want to, I, I don't want to have to depend on that. Cause if it fails, um, I, yeah, I think I'm going to start doing that. Um, but I haven't really had to do that yet. Um, I'm running with, uh, also clear vision panels, keeps my visibility, um, up, especially, uh, I, I ice up early in the morning. It happens every time. Um, are those, uh, those are homemade, um, plexiglass yep. panels. Yep. 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 So for the, for the listeners uh, who aren't familiar with wave flying, it's a, a essentially turning the glider um, glider canopy into a double paned window. So wherever that double pane is, it, it significantly cuts down on the frost or uh, moisture buildup on the inside and outside. Correct. Yeah. A sunny day, um, not going too high. You can get, get away with it. Um, early, early morning launches, uh, you're going to ice up, um, but you know, if you're taking off before the sun comes up. So um, those are, those are important to have plenty of water bags, food, things can get warm in there too, you know, especially in the middle of the day, if you're digging around at 18,000 feet, that's, uh, it gets pretty warm. So, um, dehydration can be a, a, a big issue on, on, on these long flights. Definitely. So. Gordon, you currently hold five U S records, all for incredible long distance flights over the last 18 years. Which one of these flights are you most proud of? I would say that the flight that I did with, uh, that I was able to share with Hugh Bennett, uh, the guy that uh, had the duo discus, and uh, I did a lot of these long flights with. Um, I, we flew; it was over two thousand kilometer, three turn point. And that was a national record. That I think is probably the most rewarding because we were able to share that together, and that was uh, that was a pretty. Uh, it wasn't as challenging as some of my other flights. But I think it was just the scenery and uh, everything just worked out very well. And it, it was a it was a big flight and it was uh, um, to me, it was a big flight to him. It was a big flight. And uh, we were able to share that together. And I think the next one would probably be my steamboat flight in the Kestrel because that was my yeah. I think my first downwind flight. And, and uh, mm-hmm. half of that was done thermals and it was just you know, it was, it was neat. And that's what kind of got me hooked on the downwind stuff. Oh my God, this is really cool. You know, and it, everything worked out safely. And so, um, so yeah, I would say that, uh, that I, I don't know quite how long it was. It was, it was over 2000 kilometers, a three turn point, uh, national distance record. So that was, uh, that was probably my, my overall, my most rewarding flight. Awesome. Uh, Gordon, when planning flights like this, what are the tools you're using in the days leading up to this, these flights? And also, how have these forecast tools evolved over your soaring career? Um, I know we've got new additions to the repertoire like SkySight, but uh, that's only in the last few years that these kind of high fidelity um, yeah. rasps have been available. Right. So 
I think initially what I do is I, I take a look at the uh, 500 and 700 millibar uh, GFS models, which go go out about two weeks, just kind of get a good picture. Although two weeks out is not reliable at all, and I don't really count on that. But once we get probably within a week out, I will look at that GFS of 500 and 700 millibar and start kind of seeing if things are lining up for that particular type of flight, because a downwind flight is different than maybe a yo-yo flight, a yo-yo flight, I, I consider more as uh, localized weather. So I think that's easier to predict going up and down the Sierras, but I'll typically start it off with a GFS uh, models, the 700 and 500 millibar uh, charts. And then I will coming to the days of it, I'll start referencing that along with SkySight. And then, you know, I'll start, you know, I, I don't pretend to know everything. I'll call the people that know that do, and I'll call Walt Rogers and, and the meteorologists and, and Kempton. And I, what I like doing is tr trying to kind of get everyone's head on everyone to look at it and get everyone on board to, to kind of come up with the solution, because, especially on the downwind stuff. It, it's, you don't want to you don't want to strike out on that and end up, you know, mm -hmm. two or 300 miles down the road and all that work's gone into that. So um, the, the, the yo-yo flights or the, the up and down the Sierra flights, I can pretty much um, look at the, I'll, pretty much look at those myself. And, and I, I, I shout out to Matthew Scudder with SkySight. I, I love that site. I can't, I can't say anything about any of the others uh, uh, because I don't use them because um, I've been so happy with SkySight that I just stick with it. And but Matthew Scudder has been super responsive. Uh, there was a few weeks ago, we were thinking about going downwind. I emailed Matt said, Hey, uh, when do you update the, the forecast for SkySight? And he says, well, I, I do it. Um, typically I think he said every 18 hours it's done, but he goes, if you're, I said, I was thinking about going downwind. He goes, well, I'll, I'll have it updated every eight hours for you then for the next two days. <laughs> Fantastic. So that's the kind of support that's really good. And, uh, uh, when I flew with Jim, uh, Lee on that 1500 kilometer, yeah, 15, I think 1500 kilometers a few weeks ago. Um, I flew with Keith first 1900 kilometers. Then I flew with Jim on that 1500 kilometers. We, we got off at a fairly late in the morning. We weren't really going to plan on much, but, um, that was a, uh, an all blue day. And, um, Jim was using SkySight. He saved the data and was kind of, uh, as the time was, was changing, he was updating things and that was a huge resource. And I, I had never used, I'd actually never used it SkySight in flight. You know, I've always done it the old school way, visual cues or, kind of going where I know it's working or it should be working and, and zigzagging around and finding it that way. But with, with Jim Lee's, uh, um, sky on his, uh, phone that he had saved, it was, it was really, it was actually pretty darn accurate, you know? So, um, so those are the, the tools that I use and, and nowadays being able to put the stuff and use it in flight, i.e. sky sight with, uh, the vertical velocity, I think it's phenomenal. Um, and I think it's a huge, um, asset and a huge aid to, uh, to what we're able to do and, and what we're going to be able to do. And I think these models might even start getting more and more accurate as time goes on. I don't know. Uh, Matthew Scudder would probably know that, um, a little more than I do, but those are the aids that I use. Um, and then, uh, during flight satellite imagery, if I'm going downwind, uh, Walt will typically look at that, you know, there you can pinpoint a uh, lenticular cloud out in Utah and say, okay, you need to uh, aim for this, you know, that type of thing. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think the, the, the aids now, and, and 
I don't, I'm not as involved with it as heavily involved as, as most people are, but I, I must say the sky set I'm extremely happy with. So. Yeah, likewise, it's a it's quite an incredible enabler, especially um, kind of showing because of the resolution, you 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 see possibilities that oh, yeah. I don't think you would have seen with a more coarse data set. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's a safety thing too, because you know you can you can see that big band of moisture and go, ooh, you know, it's, it's yeah, blows in. So, um, oh, certainly. So, yeah, so in terms of uh, things that have changed over time, just besides forecasting tools. Um, because you've been in soaring so long, how have you seen the sport change in terms of the people, the equipment, the types of soaring? Uh, OLC came along uh, mid-career for you. Um, how, how that compares with records and um, badge flying and where that all fits in. How, how have you seen things change over the years? Um, I think overall, I mean, you know, OLC is a, a, a great, great uh, tool. Um, and I think that's kind of taken over for for records for the most part because now someone's goal might be to to go get you know olc points and and be number one on olc and there's that 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 doesn't take any really pre-planning you know like declaration or or any of that other stuff or submission to the fai um and it makes it a lot i think a lot easier and more appealing to a lot of people and so i think a lot of the records are you know are people aiming for national or world records, I think that's kind of thrown on the back burner. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not a, I'm not a big proponent of records. I think, I think it's all about the experience and sharing that and, and sharing the, you know, uh, the capabilities of, of what these wonderful sailplanes can do and sharing that with the world. And whether that's through an IGC file photos or just stories to me, that's more rewarding than a, than a record, but, you know, I figure, you know, I'd like to start setting some goals and I think I'm going to start going after, um, I'm going to, I think I, I can now start going after some records. I think I was I'm pretty much capped out, topped off with the, uh, with the duo discus. There's, I don't, <laughs> there's not much more I can do, but, uh, you'll find out here. In the yeah. Aerox, the number one in portable and engineered aviation oxygen systems, your source for FAA-approved oxygen masks and portable oxygen systems, and now introducing the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag portable oxygen system. Small, lightweight, and simple to use, the Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com. So remember, our friends at Aerox, engineered for aviators. I see a lot of people that upgrade to nicer ships early on in their soaring career. And uh, it just, there, I think there's very few cases where the ship's actually holding the pilot back, you being one of them. <laughs> yeah, and I, that's, like I said, that's um, that's going to be resolved here pretty <laughs> Pretty well, quick. good. I'm I'm excited to see what see what the future holds for you. It's, it's going to be no excuses now for me, but <laughs> great. I'll be trying to still make them. But um, no, the duo has done a great job, and and once again, it's nice to do it in these these gliders that are not these super ships. Um, yeah. Duo is a good glider. I and mean, I've I've got my Discus A that I just I love so much. It's a joy to fly, and it's decent performance, and it's it's the, you can get them for the price of a used car. Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, and it's, it does not leave much to be desired until you are absolutely at the 
right. apex of, of soaring. Right. You know, and if you, if you can afford that super ship, great, you know, and if you can't, well, make do with what you have. And it's, it's all relative. I mean, when I see someone do a big flight in a, in a 126, it's, I mean, it's, it's cool. It's like, wow, that's neat. Or some guy in a Phoebus and you see him at number one in OLC or a standard Sears, like that's cool. You know, I still like mm-hmm. seeing that. And that's another nice thing about OLC is that, you know, whereas records, you have to have that super ship now to, to get these yeah. things. OLC, it's all handicapped, you know, and that's what's I think really appealing with that is that you can do those things um, uh, just with a, you know, like you say, a, a sailplane that that's a price of a, you know, an average car. Um, so that that I still want to um, people that are hearing us just still, you know, know that you can. It's all relative. What you do with that sailplane that you own is, uh, you know, if you going out and doing a 500 kilometer flight in a 126 that is phenomenal you know um so uh but yeah i I think um getting into these super super long flights you know uh i've always i'm starting to you know i've always wanted to think big but i think i've been kind of limited with uh with what equipment i had um so here i think in the near future i think uh that that limit will be gone so I think we start, you know, and then I can start targeting those, those massive flights and going after that stuff. And, um, so, um, we'll have, to- we'll, we'll be happy to have you back on the podcast after those flights and really seeing where the, the, the true limits of possibility yeah. lie once you have yeah. the equipment that's not holding you back. Yeah. I think, you know, I think, uh, it, you know, I think, uh, going kind of James Bondy here, I think we can, <laughs> it's, it's going to get pretty, uh, pretty interesting, you know, so just, cool. just a matter of having the time and, and having the weather, you know, to, to do exactly. That. So, uh, one last question for you, Gordon. So uh, before the lightning round, um, in soaring, there are often mentors and friends who have major impacts on our development as pilots. Who are the individuals who that stick out to you in your soaring journey? Well, I think, uh, early on in my, um, soaring career, like I, I mentioned earlier, Henry Coombs, uh, he, he, he's done a lot for soaring. I think he's, he's been a great inspiration because he was, he was there. I got to see him do a lot, make a lot of these flights. And then, uh, Steve, um, I'm sorry, Mike Kerner, um, he had done a lot of downwind flights in a, in a Kestrel 19, uh, done several downwind flights and he was kind of pioneered Bob Harris, uh, great inspiration, very good friend of mine. Um, he had the world altitude record 49,000 feet. Um, uh, these are the guys that was, that was hardcore stuff, you know, what, what they did back in the days and, you know, um, you know, and they were the ones that kind of kicked this whole thing thing off. And, and, uh, I also got to know Jacques Kuttner uh, a little bit, um, who had written some articles in Soaring Magazine. He great inspiration for the downwind stuff. And, and I've always told him he's, he's no longer with us, but I have always told, I said, Jacques, I, I would love to do a 2000 kilometer, uh, straight out flight and, and do it in, in, your honor because um he was always a big proponent of the downwind um stuff um klaus Ullmann, guy guy's a stud um yeah he's done it all you know he's done it down there and uh you know, down in the andes and and he he knew that he just kind of took the limits off of everything and, and, and went for it and and i think uh that's i think you know records are meant to be broken i i don't if anyone broke a distance record of mine, good for you. That's what it's all about, you know? And I think 
Klaus probably thinks the same, but it, I'd like to go after some of his stuff. And I think uh, here in the near future, it's going to be doable. And I think geographically, we're in a very good situation or a good place here in the Minden and the Nevada Sierra area to, to be able to do uh, big flights, you know, a uh, 1500 kilometer triangle flight in the wave. I think it's very doable. Um, <laughs> wow. And I think, uh, you know, uh, I, I think I'll be able to do that here um, with, with what I'm going to have in the near future. So, um, so yeah, and, and it, it, it would be me to kind of, it, it, you know, I, I think we can keep going further with this wave flight. Um, and just because the sun goes down, doesn't mean, doesn't mean that we need to stop flying, you know? So, um, sure. yeah, I know Tito's done some overnight stuff, uh, when he was, when he was flying down South a good amount, mm-hmm. um, that opens up a whole nother possibilities where you're not limited to the 10 or 12 hours of, uh, daylight, right. which is present for the, the majority of the wave season. Once you're, once you can open it up where, I mean, wave doesn't, these, these systems aren't preferable of whether they happen during the daylight or during, during the night. I mean, there's right. plenty of incredible wave days that start at 8 PM and end at 6 AM. Exactly. Yep. And that's, that's a good point, Zach. And I think that's kind of the point I'm making is that, uh, you know, given the right equipment, um, you can really expand the envelope of what's capable. And I think that would be neat. And I would be nice to for some kid in 30 years from now going wow that what, what gordo did there that was pretty cool you know he was you know, he, he took it to a whole new level uh, you know i think we can do this safely i i think uh and i think we should um and maybe we can get soaring back on the on the map anyway in the u.s and and maybe get some visibility out of this whole thing to to where it, it's it kind of piques some interest in, in people and we get these young kids that go wow that was cool and i want to go do that um, yeah. So. Well, as Avgas quickly ticks up in price, that might be pushing some GA people to con- reconsider the uh, um, <laughs> the yeah. more uh, yeah. gas-free approach to this. Exactly. Yeah. Go go cover some miles without a motor. That's the way I like. Exactly. It. You know. Anyway. I've got four last questions for you. Yep. If you got it, hopefully some quick ones. But uh, what's your longest unintentional land out that you've done? Longest land out from uh, where you started? That would have been on a thermal flight because every Every yep. wave flight is, uh, if I go downwind, it's that someone's driving with the trailer on the back of that thing. Cause I'm, you know, once you go downwind, you're gone, you know, you're not coming back, yeah. you know, with a headwind. So, um, I would say probably in a farmer field, uh, with my Kestrel with, uh, yeah, that was an interesting flight. I landed, uh, east of here, a place called Grass Valley. And I actually landed my Kestrel close to that on a wave flight on a crop duster strip after a a big wave flight, but uh, that was a 2000 kilometer flight. But on a thermal flight, I landed in a farmer field and I remember distinctly the whole mountain range behind me was on fire because of a, a lightning strike. And um, the farmer guy came out and I spent the night at the, at the farmer house and stayed in touch with him and sent him Christmas cards for several years after that. And, you know, that's what it's all about. So, but yeah, there hasn't been any anything really too far from here where I, it was an unintended landing. <laughs> so you save the times when you, when you don't make it back for when you have a crew and the whole production behind you. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yep. Exactly. So in terms of glider performance, would you prefer two extra meters of wingspan or two extra pounds of wing loading when you're flying crosswind wave or uh, thermals? Crosswind wave. I'll take the wing loading. Yeah. 
downwind, I'll take the, I'll take the wingspan anytime. Give me an EB 29 or something on a downwind flight. I'll take that. Excellent. Yeah. Um, as you've alluded to, you have something coming. I'm not sure if this particular one is your absolute dream ship, but if money was no object, uh, what would be the, your ship? Well, I think it's coming. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, we'll just have to wait on that one. Okay. Finally, um, another question, money, not being concerned, money or logistics, not being concerned. Where would you like to fly? worldwide uh yeah I, I, i've always i've always wanted to go down or down to uh Bitterwasser. i always thought that it would be pretty cool to go down there and do the big thermal stuff although you know i, I think it's pretty similar out here in the great basin you know ely um but i think flying in the andes would be pretty cool in wave i think i would like to do that but i don't have the the means or the funds to really t- drag a glider down there and i think it's a little more difficult down there to to, to do that but i think yeah talking to jim i understand the logistics for there are a nightmare yeah but i think uh everything aside if if there are no limits uh yeah probably bit of and um down in the andes i think would be pretty cool excellent well gordon thank you so much for your time spending the evening with me and uh spreading uh spreading the glider joy worldwide um, it's pretty cool to hear your story, hear your background, and and all the things that you've accomplished, plus all the things, all your future plans. So we're really looking forward to seeing what you have in store. Um, any closing thoughts before we wrap this up? Hey Zach, it's people like you. It's it's the young guys like you that got to keep this sport alive. And uh, hopefully, with some of my flights, I'll, I'll draw draw some interest there too. But thank you for doing what you're doing. Continue to do it. Podcasts are great, and um, uh, we'll see if I'll. I'll pass you up in the sky again, like we did a last uh, two years ago, or whenever that was. But uh, thank you for your yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, we'll we'll be seeing more of each other either in the wave or on the ground or uh, thermal flights. Uh, I'm sure sure we'll have plenty of times we pass each other in the future. And that, yeah, you're more than welcome to come right. up here. I'd love to get you up in the glider. We'll go do a excellent. Wave. Uh, we'll definitely be taking you up on that. So, all right, thank you, Zach. We'll see you. Hi everyone, Sergio from Soaring Master here. Today we're going to talk about speed, more specifically about the pursuit of greater cross-country speeds. Many pilots think that the efforts and the pursuit for greater cross-country speeds in our tasks is competition pilots chatter. Why would any regular pilot not interested in contests feel tempted to improve his speeds or to follow a training plan or a training schedule? And the fact is that Every pilot must have the achievement of higher cross-country speeds in mind, because otherwise, one is seriously risking landing out in a navigation. Being too conservative will make you land out. Simple like that. This happens because in order to make our cross-country flights, we explore a finite time window of the atmosphere, which will inevitably end. Once up there, we are subject to a number of variables we don't control. High cover, areas with a worse thermal production, wind changes, blue areas, haze, and a number of other things. You might even have done everything possible to pick a super advantageous time frame of the day for your flight using all resources available in terms of weather forecasts, and you still be susceptible to a sudden reduction in this time window. That's why being faster shall be every pilot's number two greatest priority during a cross-country flight. 
the first one shall always be safety. But being faster will give you a greater margin to deal with any sudden change in atmospheric conditions, and it will also increase the chances of completion of your task. If you have never analyzed your flights before, do so. Make a track record of your flights and their achieved cross-country speeds. Take notes of what went wrong and what you did right in your flight. Identify your gaps and work on them. Because once you're up there without an engine, speed, dear pilot, is essential. For more tips, follow me on Instagram at SurreyMaster or check my website, SurreyMaster.com. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.